You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm your host, Mike Brazier, and joining me here in studio is my co-host, Chris Jennings. On the line, we have a guest that's going to help us with our continuing series, continuing coverage on season in review. We're going to be talking about the Pacific Northwest, and I'm happy to welcome in Kyle Spragans, the Waterfowl Section Manager for Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks, Mike, and hey, Chris, how's it going? It's going great, Kyle. Glad to have you. I, I guess you've been on the podcast once before. We talked about something maybe a couple of years ago, but um, it's been a while, and we wanted to get you on to give us an update on the Pacific Northwest, sort of a season in review, I guess, more than an update. We spoke with a couple of folks throughout the season on uh, how things were unfolding south of you there in California, and of course, drought and then flooding later in the winter was a big, uh, were, were the two big topics there. But Obviously, the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, those areas are are waterfowling hotbeds in their own right. That that Washington waterfowling, that secret that y'all have got up there mm-hmm. is starting to get out. I yeah. can just tell you. 
So uh, appreciate not, you. Not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's that's okay. exactly what I would say. <laughs> um, so, Kyle, I guess to to start with, briefly, just kind of give people an idea of what you do for the state, uh, what kind of kind of responsibilities you have, where you are, that type of stuff. Yep, I work for uh, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, so the state agency charged with those harvestable species and regulations around that. In Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife lingo, uh, my title is the Waterfowl Section Manager. I coordinate um, sort of the statewide monitoring responsibilities, but also serve as the connection with the Pacific Flyway um, Study Committee, the technical arm in the Pacific Flyway that's looking at migratory game bird populations and topics and issues. Uh, and so I'm that go-between from the state to our federal and, and uh, international partners in that realm. We have a, a variety of activities from banding to surveys that we conduct uh, that are often complementing some of the sort of larger national surveys that folks are more more familiar with, perhaps. And, um, and so, yeah, we do a lot of ground activity monitoring uh, to try to feed into better better informed decisions as it relates to waterfowl harvest management. And so those kind of responsibilities allow you and require you to stay up to date, knowledgeable of the way things are unfolding, habitat-wise, weather-wise, breeding conditions, uh, wintering habitat conditions. I mean, that's that's kind of your thing, right? And so that's why we wanted to bring you on here to talk about it in the Pacific Northwest. And I guess to start with, we'll go back because we haven't given a whole lot of coverage to this recently. This is sort of where it all starts when we think about what the hunting season is going to be like or what the population is going to be like. It's sort of the breeding habitat conditions. And we have talked in the past, I guess last fall, about uh, generally the areas that are important for producing ducks that make it to the Pacific Flyway. But we wanted to get your perspective on the the key things that developed last year, what your expectations were uh, and, and expectations of hunters as you entered the season with regard to, you know, production, fall flight. How were people preparing themselves in terms of uh, uh, what they might expect? Yeah, good question. Well, as you alluded to, uh, particularly in Washington, you know, we're keeping our eyes on several different regions. We do have local production, certainly for for mallard and Canada geese uh, and, and a variety of other species, but those are the two that are sort of the most predominant when we're doing our aerial surveys. Uh, but we're looking, you know, east of the Prairies, you know, southern Alberta is certainly a big uh, a big production area for mallard and pintail that are coming particularly into the east side of the state, the the zone that most folks know as the Columbia Basin. Uh, we get a large number of birds that are coming down from central British Columbia, uh, often that sort of Fraser Plateau, the upper part of the Fraser uh, watershed is kind of forgotten in the mix of how much productivity actually comes out of that um, intermountain region. And then, of course, to Alaska. And, um, you know, I would say, particularly in the west side of the state and down into places like the Willamette Valley, that production that's coming from Alaska, while most people are probably thinking of, you know, widgeon and pintail and green-winged teal as some of the big ones, the the number of mallards that are coming down from Alaska certainly uh, is felt in, in, in Washington, uh, particularly around that Puget Sound the lowlands, the low-lying areas around the Puget Town. So uh, with all that, certainly there was a lot of nervousness going into the season because we were in uh, extraordinary drought on the east side. Uh, we had sort of epic rains on the west side, almost to the 
point of being detrimental um, from the timing standpoint. Uh, just there was so much water so quickly uh, that it was a little unclear how the west side was going to pan out. Um, obviously, the you know southern southern Alberta has been in sustained drought for quite some time, and we feel that certainly in the pintail, but um, you know in terms of numbers, but in in terms of the harvest, it's felt. F- from in the standpoint of, do you have a lot of naive mallards, you know, young of the year mallards coming down, or are you dealing with a very, you know, older group of birds? And so there was a lot of unknowns. We we weren't particularly optimistic, un- with the one exception of there had been some decent numbers associated with Alaska. We just weren't sure what the productivity of that was going to translate to. But I guess the other indicator for us, while we do a, a a spring breeding survey on both sides of of the state. You know, numbers were fairly average. There wasn't anything that stood out as as uh, extraordinary. Um, but then we follow that up with our banding. We do have preseason mallard banding, and so we get a little bit of a sense of well, how many young are winding up in these traps. And the general observation from the field was there wasn't a lot of young birds early in our trapping season. But as we got towards the later part, some young birds showed up. And of course, we don't really know if that means they're from Washington or if they're coming down from British Columbia or elsewhere. So, Kyle, I want to stick with Alaska here briefly because I know there was a very significant weather system that came in and affected Alaska late summer, early fall. Almost, if I'm remembering correctly, I heard some characterization of it as like, uh, almost hurricane strength and and significant flooding in the YK Delta, and I think it's the YK Delta. You can correct me on that. Did that have? Do you know if that had any effect on the production that ultimately made it south? Did it cause any mortality either in ducks or geese? You know, we heard we heard a little bit of impact in terms of you know flooding along like the the margins of the like the YK Delta, Yukon uh, Kuskokwim Delta, where a lot of the geese come from. It's harder to feel that in some of the duck species, I think. Um, and so I, there was a little bit of hint that maybe that was going to, uh, uh, you know, manifest in some sort of reduced, you know, young goose uh, flight. But uh, it was a little unclear still in, in the ducks. Yeah, okay. But certainly, yeah, certainly those, you know, th- that characterization, just the weather, the weather that happens, uh, you know, while we watch the drought maps often, it's 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 often, um, you know, a, f- a freak late, rain or something in the in the summer that can really drive the trajectory a different way. We had that in eastern Washington where a very late rain system came in and flooded out several of the sort of northeast rivers. And so the ducklings we were catching were still tiny, you know, like two-day-old ducklings in the first week of July. Uh, so it was a very late nesting, you know, timing uh, in certain parts of the state. Um, so yeah, that was sort of the mixed bag. It was like, it, it, it seemed like production was off early, but maybe there was a little bit of a, a second wave towards the end. Hey Kyle, I got a quick question and this is kind of, you know, our audience obviously is national, but you know, a majority of them are coming from the Mississippi and central flyway. Um, and I think, and even myself, you know, growing up and hunting in the Midwest, I had no idea what you guys out in Washington were doing. <laughs> like it's, uh, but I think for our audience, it'd be great for you to kind of explain the, the drastic differences in habitat types throughout the state from from west to east. You know, it it goes pretty 
pretty wild. And and I think that's something for a lot of, you know, our hunters where, you know, you're talking about Kansas and Indiana and, you know, it's, it's pretty much the same throughout the entire state, you know, other than small variants where you, you guys are dealing with drastic differences in habitat types. Can you kind of talk about that and just kind of describe what that looks like for our audience? Sure. Yeah, I'll give it a, I'll give it a try. Um, <laughs> no, that's right. Washington feels like two very different states and that split comes as a result of the mountains that run down sort of the not quite halfway, kind of the third of the state, uh, the Cascade Mountain Range. And to the west of that, uh, as it drops off into the Puget Sound and towards the Pacific Ocean, we're influenced by just constant rain pattern and uh, and precipitation coming off of the Pacific Ocean. And so, you know, um, that, that water availability on the west side is maybe a little more predictable, uh, you know, when it actually comes is a little bit unpredictable, but that is what drives it. Uh, between that and sort of the cold weather to the north in Alaska driving the migrants down. But we're talking about, you know, coastal rainforest. I mean, it is, it is, uh, there, it is all about water, whether we're talking about tidal, tidal situations, salt marsh um, along the fringe of the Puget Sound or in the lower Columbia River um, and, you know, anywhere into seasonal flooded marsh and agricultural fields, right? The sort of classic region people might be familiar with is the Skagit Valley up by the British Columbia border. Uh, it's a big agricultural zone for uh, potatoes and barley and, you know, the, the sort of typical crops that, that uh, you know, waterfowl and particularly geese uh, certainly find food resources in. And so uh, that's kind of a hot spot. And then that contrasts with the east side of the state, east of the Cascades, which is the Columbia River drainage or part of, a big part of the Columbia River drainage. Um, and so it's funneling a ton of water from both snow melt, but also, or, you know, like snowpack water melt, but also just sort of um, big, vast open areas. Uh, the, the, the two that are kind of the ones that, that aren't well known um, kind of outside in the Columbia Basin are ones referred to as the channeled scablands, which is a landscape that's dotted with thousands of wetland depressions. Uh, we don't actually even know the true number. There's so many. and uh, But those wetland complexes are huge for things like redheads or cinnamon teal. You know, there's, there's a production that is kind of hidden within that. But it's an arid landscape. It's a very low precipitation uh, part of the state. And so it, you are talking about a lot more drier agriculture, um, open plains. And so that, you know, the wetland types over there are much more emergent freshwater marsh uh, or the deeper waters of the Columbia River. And so we do get a variety of, of uh, you know, diving ducks and that come into the Columbia River. Um, but when you get into the heart of the winter, in the Columbia Basin, you're really talking about the big birds that can hold on. And so largely that's mallards and Canada geese and not a whole lot of anything else on the east side. Whereas on the west side, we we consistently have over 20 species of ducks that are making up the bag, right? From sea ducks to dabbling ducks and um, a whole variety. And so that is certainly driven by that underlying diversity of wetland types that we have uh, that are very different in those two parts of the state. So cool. y you can find whatever you're looking for. I guess that's the, yeah. that's, that's the fun part of it. <laughs> Kyle, that's a great backdrop for my next question. And it relates to the effect of 
drought, that widespread Western drought, and which parts of the state it affected or did it affect. We've, as I've kind of introduced, we've spoken with a number of people about the severity of the drought in California, and uh, we we know it was super severe throughout much of the Intermountain West. I'm not certain, though, how strong that drought was up in the eastern part of, of Washington. What can you tell me about that? And did you feel any effects of the drought once you got kind of west of the Cascades? I'm guessing there's not a whole lot of, of, of effect there, but at least in terms of the habitat conditions. But uh, what can you tell me about how that drought may have shaped things in Washington? Yeah, eastern Washington, uh, well, as you allude to, so, um, you know, that that divide in the state is also replicated in the two joint ventures, the two habitat joint ventures that Washington straddles, Pacific Bird Habitat to the west and the Intermountain West Joint Venture to the east. And so we were in exceptional drought in parts of the Columbia Basin. It wasn't quite as bad as two summers ago, but it was still at levels where, you know, in each of the descriptions of the type of drought or the drought classification, you know, they say sort of the common expectations, you know, crop failure and those types of things. And there were parts of the Columbia Basin that had hit the the most exceptional level where they didn't have a description because they hadn't been there before. And so they didn't know what to expect. Uh, It was pretty concentrated, those types of real extremes, you know, because it is uh, the, the Columbia River basically goes kind of around this large route routing and then there's an agricultural practice uh, uh, program the irrigation project in the middle that is what drives all the agriculture in the Columbia basin so because of that there is sort of this constant source of water it's just where is the water actually being and so whether or not uh, you know in those exceptional drought scenarios that's where that dotted landscape of the channeled scablands not as many wetland complexes are out there in those real dry years. And so you know that there's going to be some level of of reduced productivity. And whether that's across the board or just delayed, this year what it seemed like was it was delayed. There was probably a sort of a second effort uh, into June that was probably where we actually got young birds from. And so anyway, it uh, you know, it what's hard to gauge right now is that the the timing of the range. So right now, you know, if you look at the drought map, Washington's actually in pretty good shape. We're probably almost all white. We're probably at almost zero, you know, drought in the state uh, at the moment. But this next two months, as we head into the breeding season, is what's going to make or break everything. And the and the la- and the pattern in the last couple of years is it suddenly goes dry for two months, and we wind up, you know, right back in the drought situation. So. Um, yeah, we certainly, you know, the the vast majority of our local production is coming from the east side uh, of the state, but certainly that's where the boom bust comes in. The west side stays more static. It's kind of very predictable of how many breeding pairs of mallards or something we're going to see on the west side of the state. The east side can have this wild fluctuation of the number of breeding pairs that we encounter on our surveys, um, depending on the, the availability of wetlands out there on that landscape. So. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 
Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. perspective as you got into the fall and winter to kind of draw a comparison to what we saw in California I guess it was they, they started to they went into that hunting season super dry they were concerned about waterfowl hunters even finding places to hunt some of the public areas didn't have all of their their units and their spaces available for hunting because they just didn't have the water and so I'm curious if that if you all saw something similar in eastern Washington and did you get any of those when did you start getting periods of rain relief uh, kind of similar to, to what California did right so you know the west coast I think people are becoming a little bit more familiar with the the term of the atmospheric rivers right the sort of the center punch focused rainfall that occurs uh, particularly in the fall time and the part of that it's you know it's a fire hose of water and wherever that fire hose is hitting that year is where the where the water is going to get concentrated and so two summers ago the um you know the the border between washington and and british columbia the fraser valley was the center punch right and to the point where they had flooding and bridges getting washed out and railroads you know uh getting carved out so that was Two years ago. This year, because it's center punched on California, we were dry uh, until well into November. And so, you know, that the moisture kind of shifted south and we were sort of abnormally dry compared to uh, what we would normally expect. So it took a while. It took a while for both West End, um, particularly Western Washington, to really get water on the landscape. And as when that happens, birds are just really concentrated into whatever water is out there on the landscape. In the west side of the state, we have the sort of the backup system of the tidal waters, right? They can go out on the tidal flats and the protected bays, uh, protected eelgrass bays and those types of areas and kind of have sort of that, that um, you know, secure backup plan wetland. Uh, in the east side, it was really sort of whatever wetland basins actually had water in it. That was pretty much where the birds were for for several months until we got, we finally got into some rains it was really kind of in thanksgiving time period maybe even a little after that it was it was pretty stalled out for a while um 
And meanwhile, it was getting cold to the north. And so when the north freezes, then you got even more birds coming into these concentrated areas. We see that most with the geese, like just visually, right? We know that geese are concentrated to these very limited, you know, roost ponds that are out on the landscape. It's harder to kind of see it with the ducks, but it's definitely going on the same way. It was very limited in where there were actually wetlands available pretty much in uh, up until about Thanksgiving time. And and so then things improved and that moves birds around and gives people new hunting opportunities much the same way that dynamic works in other landscapes. You think about cold temperatures, you think about new water that moves birds and gives people gets people excited, same type of situation plays out there. That's absolutely right. I mean, oftentimes it's, you know, it's kind of portrayed as the resident versus the migrant birds coming down, but really it's more like what you just said is it's stirring the pot. You know, those birds are probably there. It's just that the, whether it's temperature or or rainfall patterns have suddenly, you know, provided availability or accessibility to foods that have been out there, but the birds just couldn't get to it. Right. And so that spreads them out kind of, it it kind of opens up the, the breadth of who's actually getting opportunity for, uh, for productive waterfowl hunting, right. Whether that's ducks or geese. And so, um, yeah, the, while it started slow, uh, and there was certainly concerns about, you know, how much productivity was going to be coming down. It certainly picked up by Thanksgiving time, certainly in December and January, we had a lot more water, um, you know, there were a couple stall out periods, but, you know, in the, 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 the east side of the state, that's where a lot of focus shifts towards hunting on the Columbia River, whether that's for diving ducks or some key areas where there's sort of concentrations of dabbling ducks that are going to move, move to that open water uh, as the roost or whatever. And so, um, yeah, no, it, it started slow and a little bit, uh, you know, slow burn, uh, but it, it definitely picked up. And uh, I, I would say we, from all accounts, it seemed like we probably wound up closer to an average season than I think most people expected. Some people probably felt that differently in, in, in particular parts of the state. But, uh, you know, if you, you know, it sounded like folks that put in the time were definitely getting into some birds in all in sort of all corners that we would expect them to. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely pretty much answers my my question that I had was just based on the pace of the migration and how how does that how did it compare to other years? And you could, you probably have to do that in an east west fashion and probably separate it entirely. Um, but how did it compare overall to you know? past years as far as just just the pace of the migration and and you can separate ducks and geese too if you want to but you know just kind of an overall you know just a, just a review there well you know um, the hidden secret part of Washington is we we shoot a good number of ducks right um you know around 400,000 total duck harvest but close to 50% of that is mallards and that puts Washington mm-hmm. up in the top 5 sometimes top 3 and in more recent years top 2 of mallard harvest mm-hmm. in the nation Uh, So mallard is a big component of that, uh, followed by American widgeon. And so if you take those two species, that's about two-thirds of the entire duck harvest in Washington. Man, that's that's a good one-two punch. I have that on my list of notes here to ask you about. It just says (laughs) widgeon, question mark. So I didn't know where I was going with that, but I knew that you guys, you know, just from looking at past harvest data, you can compare that. And it's just the the widgeon harvest is is pretty astounding. It's it's awesome. There are a lot of hunters that would scratch and claw for for widgeon and and mallards to be one and two. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Secret. We're going to have to edit that out. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, so that's what plays out. You know, on the west side of the state, it's probably more of a mixture of mallard and widgeon and and the other, you know, the other dabbling ducks that kind of feed into that pintail and green wing teal. On the east side of the state, it's pretty much mallard focused because of just the surrounding agriculture and the wetland types. It's, you know, mallard and Canada goose is by far the most predominant harvest over in the Columbia Basin, unless you go looking for some of those other birds like diving ducks on the Columbia River. So because of that, yes, you feel it. Uh, you, you They kind of feel it differently. And, uh, you know, those widgeon on the west side of the state are, are very associated with Alaska. So until that push kind of comes from Alaska, there's there's not a huge number, but they do arrive fairly early. You know, we see some uh, we see some initial pulses of of pintail and widgeon by mid August, even mm-hmm. you know, starting to come down the flyway. But you don't get into the bulk of it until maybe yeah, early October or something like that, where you get the peaks really starting to come down. So yeah, and then in terms of geese, you know, the that sort of difference in diversity of species also pans out. On the east side of the state, it's very Canada goose focused. There has been increasing snow geese uh, in the last 10 years. And so there's been sort of a new opportunity over there um, that that folks are getting into. But on the west side of the state, you know, uh, that's where that that complex of all the different subspecies of Canada and cackling geese all kind of merge together. Um, there's There are hot spots for snow geese, particularly up in that Skagit Fraser zone. And then the other one in the West is, is Brant. Brant's a big opportunity in, in four specific kind of coastal bays of, of uh, Washington. It's a very limited season, but, um, you know, that sort of mixture of opportunity is what kind of spreads out the hunt, harvest pressure on the West side a little bit better. So. Yeah. I know we're, we're joking around about letting the secret out about Washington. You know, we've kind of talked about that for the last few years around here, especially. Um, but I know a lot of people, even this year, who primarily hunt in Arkansas, but this year they took a trip out to Washington. Are you seeing that in your uh, non-resident waterfowling licenses? Is that showing up? Are you guys like, oh yeah, people are, you know, are kind of recognizing Washington as a real waterfowler's paradise now? Where we've seen it pick up is uh, we have a couple instances where we have mandatory harvest reporting just because the, the traditional ways of keeping tabs on harvests pick up numbers well, both for total mm-hmm. harvest and sort of the hunting effort, I guess, you know, number of hunters and hunter days. So uh, in those cases, we do have a way to kind of more directly see, oh yeah, there's definitely an uptick in the non-resident um, numbers. And sometimes it's not the numbers that are so much uh, so drastic, although there has been an uptick. It's sort of the spread of states that we see it from, right? So I think, mm-hmm. I don't think I pulled it yet for this year, but last year, I think out of the non-resident, uh, uh, those cards that we could see, the non-resident uh, affiliation. It was something like 24 different states yeah. represented there. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, we we know that. We know just because of the diversity of species that are are here. Um, oftentimes, it's, it's easier to get to Washington than Alaska. And so that we know that that's kind of a tendency. And we also know that there's some species that, um, you know, are hard to come by or even think about coming by in other parts of the country. And so we know, we know that that's, you know, a potential and that's where uh, some of those species we keep kind of a closer tab on is is important because it can go sideways really quickly sometimes. But Kyle, do you have, do you guys have any late season goose um, opportunities open right now in your state? We do. Um, I mentioned the, the, the sort of expansion of white geese. Uh, so the white geese, uh, largely almost exclusively snow geese in Washington 
are almost exclusively associated with the Wrangell Island population uh, in in eastern Russia. And so um, that population has been growing really quickly uh, in the last decade. It's also been expanding in terms of where some of those, uh, the sort of the traditional versus sort of new winter areas to expect them to be at. And so, you know, we, Washington in particular, has rapidly gone through a series of liberalizing the bag opportunity. And that has included pushing some season days, um, I should say shifting season days from that sort of typical mid-October to the end of January period uh, into days either in February or or even as late as uh, March. Not too many days in March, but the point being there's two specific zones, uh, one up in that Skagit uh, where there's a a very short uh, white goose opportunity. There's also a white goose opportunity in the Columbia Basin that's uh, going on right now. And then down in that southwest corner where we have the mixture of of Canada and cackling goose subspecies, there is a a late uh, opportunity down there um, trying to kind of offset some of the agricultural concerns and issues that that happen down in that zone. So Kyle, I'm I'm curious that the Pacific Flyway does not have access to the light goose conservation order, right? That is correct. Yeah. So then those those hunting season dates into February and even early March for geese are available because that's what like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act allows that larger framework allows that hunting. It basically prohibits hunting between March 10th and like September 1st or something of that nature, right? So in, in theory, that's that's what gives you the ability to do that. And that's different for ducks right now, right? Because there was a recent change to a piece of legislation that said duck seasons have to close by January 31st. Is that right? That's correct. So the overarching bounds uh, that exist are about that September 1st to March 10th. That's what's in Migratory Bird Treaty and the convention language. And has been reflected in federal law. There are then frameworks that are specific to some of the uh, the types, uh, you know, whether we're talking about ducks or geese. And as you just alluded to, for ducks, yes, there was a hard written amendment that basically said duck hunting may not go past January 31st in any of the flyways with the exception of, you know, like youth or veteran and active military hunts, special hunt dates. The part that's important there and how this plays out differently in the Pacific Flyway sometimes uh, is because of that 107 days, you know, that part of that rule is you may not invoke more than 107 days towards any species in any geographically defined area. That's why we have duck zones and goose management areas or goose zones so that you can kind of shift that a little bit uh, depending on where you are in the state, but you cannot exceed that 107. And so in the Pacific Flyway, to put days, you know, because we tend to open mid-October or somewhere in there, depending on the state, that run, 107 days runs to the end, last weekend of January. And so to put days into February or even up to March 10th, that's why I said shifting. We actually have to take days out and put them out towards the end and kind of place those days, try to align those days as best as we can with the opportunity in terms of when we know snow geese are likely to come into one of those zones. And and all that is because of exactly what you said. The Pacific Flyway is not part of, was was never part of the conservation order. That was not an option in the Pacific Flyway. And so that means we still have to abide by the rules of the 107 days and the September 1st to um, March 10th, you know, realm. So yeah, it, it, 
takes a little bit more uh, strategizing, I guess, of like, well, when's our best use of those days? Uh, especially if we're trying to use it as a tool to up harvest rate on uh, an increasing population of snow geese off of Wrangell Island or something like that. So, well, I appreciate you uh, answering that question. I get, it just occurred to me as we were listening to you talk, and I try to kind of put myself in the mind of some of our listeners, and they may be wondering um, about some of those things that you were talking about, and I just wanted to kind of clarify that. The other thing that they may be wa- some may be wondering about is how does the Pacific Flyway get 107 days? I was going to say, there's somebody that, sitting around here in Mystery <laughs> Flyway. Yeah. They get to hunt for 107 days? <laughs> that is a topic for, for another day, and we actually did talk with that little uh, talk about that a little bit with Dale Humberg a number of episodes ago maybe mm-hmm. even in the first year, but we've not done a, or Jim Dubovsky, maybe it was Jim, uh, but we've not done a deep dive on the history of that. And we're not going to do that here. So um, <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, man, that's going to that be a good one. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> happy to that. talk about that. But you know, the, the one thing I will say about the ducks though, is, you know, the, the part that gets kind of awkward is because because of that 107, because we max out the 107 to provide those special dates, the, like the youth hunt and the vet, uh, vet and active military hunt that that comes as sort of a penalty to the regular season. We have to take days out of the regular season, close it down. So, for example, Washington has a two-day closure in the middle of the season to afford that opportunity to have the youth in the in the vet hunt because we max out the 107. The other flyways, when you because there's still room between whatever it is they're offering and 107, they can just add additional days, mm-hmm. right? So that gets that gets sticky because it gets into these interesting conversations about, well, who is that day more valuable for, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. A lot of, uh, there's a lot of nuance and, you know, I don't want to say complexity. Some would describe it as complexity, but there's just a lot of different things that you had to work around in in a lot of those, uh, the regulations that you set across the flyways. And so those are always great discussions, but uh, we'll move on here. Kyle, appreciate your, you answering one of the, some of those questions there. One of the other sort of prevailing topics across this waterfowl season was avian flu. And I know that you guys saw it out there as well. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that, how it unfolded in your state and what you heard from some of the some of your Pacific Flyway colleagues. When did it first start to show up? What were the primary species? When did you see or did you see it begin to wane? Give us that uh, sketch of how it unfolded. Certainly. Uh yeah, we saw it most in the geese. I guess that was the most uh, direct observation. And that was because there was some level of mortality in the geese. Now, there's a, there's been a lot of argument about, well, is that high mortality or is that, you know, what what is that level? You see dead birds. You don't always see, you know, a bird that's sick and then recovers, right? And so in terms of timing and the species, uh, the first real indication was around about Halloween time, uh, so end of October, down along the lower Columbia River, uh, there was there were some uh, die off dead uh, cackling goose, minima, the smallest one, smallest cackling goose. Uh, there was a die off down there, several hundred, if not into the low thousands, that were being you know either observed or picked up, or um, each state kind of dealt with it a little bit differently. So that was in that sort of late October period. That kept going into November, but started fizzling out. About that time, when that sort of fizzle out further north, up in that uh, northwest corner of Washington, the Skagit Fraser, uh, there were two two spots that really flared up with snow geese. We started picking up a bunch of dead snow geese uh, on the landscape, 
in the one instance, it was well over 700 birds that we actually picked up. And then uh, the other instance was actually on one of the bays. And so the the birds that would d- die would then get moved around by wind and tide and current. And so we were picking birds up all over the place. Um, the, the commonality there was at that time, as I mentioned, there had not been many rain, much rain on the landscape. There was not a lot of water out on that landscape. And so those instances that we were picking up, particularly these concentrations of dead geese, were all on roosts. They were all on night roosts where the birds were in high aggregated flocks for long extended periods of time, right? And so if you play out the probability game of a virus has to jump to a new host and somehow keep finding that, well, that's one spot to do it is a high high aggregation uh, roost site. We did. We were seeing some other, you know, species in the mix that were that we were picking up mortalities, but certainly the geese uh, were the most prevalent. So that northwest corner that was kind of more uh, in that mid to late November time period, and that kind of fizzled out in the early part of December, uh, and then sort of it picked up over on the Columbia Basin side, and even over into some parts of uh, kind of the Idaho Oregon border a little bit later than that, and so. In, in all of those cases, it was, again, where these sort of big roost aggregations are occurring. And, and when I say that, with the snow geese for us, you know, those roosts could be anywhere from 10,000 to 60,000 birds packed into one little spot, right? And so it's a lot of individuals that if even just a handful are uh, sick, then, you know, the potential of, of something going wrong could. N- now, you know, the reality is, is well, we picked up something like a thousand birds or so, so up in that northwest corner. You know, we're our annual harvest is something like eight thousand to ten thousand birds, right? And so it was well below sort of a number that was causing us pause, but it certainly did wasn't comfortable. You know, having to go and pick up a you know dead dead geese up in those areas during the season, right? So once you got into mid December, late December, did you see the number of cases begin to drop off the way we did in the way I'm hearing about in other areas? It's been real quiet. I mean, we did have, that was about the time where we did start getting a lot more water on the landscape. So that certainly helped. But just in general, yeah, the sort of uh, number of um, reports that we were getting from either field staff or members of the public calling in observations definitely declined by by that sort of mid-December period. We just really hadn't heard too much uh, since then. And, you know, at the same time, I know that USDA was doing their uh, you know, hunter swab surveillance that was still ongoing in certain certain watersheds that had been selected. And they were getting detections of birds in the hunter harvest. But, you know, again, it's sort of this game of, well, we think there were just a lot of asymptomatic birds that survived, right? Like we think there was actually, it was there. We know it was there. It was just sort of how much did it impact birds? We saw it in the mortality of some geese, but we didn't really see that same sort of uh, parallel in in some of the duck species. We didn't we didn't come across big, you know, die-offs of, of ducks. So, st- still some question marks. One piece of information I'll pass along to you. We Just today, the day that we're recording this with you, which is February 15th, we released an episode uh, giving an update on avian flu. Uh, one of the pieces of information that we passed along in that episode came from Dr. Dave Stalneck, the Southeastern mm-hmm. Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. And they had collected a small number of birds from Louisiana and 
conducted some blood tests on them to look for antibodies, and they found antibodies for an H5-type virus. They couldn't dial it into this specific strain that we know is out there, at least not with that testing. Um, it may be doing some more. But anyway, at least at the initial test, they did find somewhere north of 60% of that sample. Uh, had circulating antibodies for an H5 uh, type of virus. So to your point, yeah. you know, kind of what you were saying, uh, that's what we thought happened. That's what you kind of described. It probably were a lot of birds that did get it. And because you can't, yeah, you, just knowing that ecology and the biology of those species and of the virus itself and those 10 to 60,000 60, snow geese in that concentrated area, you know there's a lot of transmission of the virus. Right. And so we're starting to get some data uh, that is, I, I guess, painting a picture of what, what may have happened in some of, those, uh, some of those cases. But then, of course, what happens from here, oh, we'll just have to wait and see. Right. And that's that's where that sort of discussion around the mortality gets difficult because we we have a number of the number of birds that we pick up. But to really know what that is in reality, you'd have to know, well, how many birds got sick, right? And that's the that's the unknown that we don't have. And so is it 1% mortality or you know, some some bigger number? We just don't have that denominator to, to feel comfortable about say, making some sort of statement like that. So it's very interesting to hear the results of that study because exactly right. I mean, it kind of confirms the thought of, well, if birds are concentrated in small spots in that early part of the year, I don't see how it wouldn't have circulated, right? And uh, so, yeah, it's great to have have some science backing that up. Anything else from you, Chris? Uh, Kyle, I think we're about to wrap it up here. Any any other high points or any notable observations from this hunting season or where you are now that, that you want to make people aware of or any kind of message for your hunters or folks up there in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, uh, you know, I think uh, overall it was a... Uh, slightly better than what we expected. I think it was probably a fairly average season overall, which, which um, you know, I don't think we were particularly surprised going into it with all the drought concerns and just sort of uh, discomfort around productivity. You know, I did mention that we do band a, a good number of mallards in Washington. Um, and so there was a steady trickle throughout the season of recoveries, right? And, uh, and so certainly people were getting into birds, how many people were getting into them, you know, it's always hard to tell from that. But um, yeah, I, I, we're hoping that, you know, we're hoping this next two months uh, that, that there's still precip that comes and sets us up for uh, a decent breeding season ahead and, uh, and we'll be out there surveying and uh, in the in the aircraft when that when it gets to that time. So we're, we're glad that, you know, that Things panned out a little bit better than we had hoped for, and uh, hopefully folks ma made the most of it where they could. Kyle, thanks so much for being with us here and yep. sharing perspective from the Pacific Northwest. It's always great to connect with you. Yep, thanks, Absolutely. Kyle. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Kyle Spriggins, the Waterfowl Section Manager for Washington Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, appreciate his time and insight on all things waterfowl as it played out this past season. As always, uh, well, let me thank my co-host here, Chris Jennings, for joining us here and asking some good questions as well. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does. And we thank you for joining us and for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time. 
Stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 